This episode and all of our Sundance coverage is brought to you by DaVinci Resolve and the Ursa Mini Pro from Blackmagic Design and the all-new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones, the ultimate on-camera shotgun microphone. Hey everybody, this is John Fusco and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. In his introduction prior to the screening of The Catcher Was a Spy, Sundance director of programming John Cooper described the film's director, Ben Lewin, as the nicest director he'd ever met. When you've got four decades of dealing with the chaos of filmmaking under your belt and can still be described as such, you know you must be doing something right. And while Lewin may describe his career as a, quote, career built off accidents, in reality, it is his attitude and personality that keep people coming to him with projects over and over again. The greatest lessons he's learned don't come from a technical, professional, or filmmaking level. They're personal lessons. They're the ones that help to maintain a working personality, sanity, level-headedness, and leadership when all the shit around you is hitting the fan. His philosophy is to stay positive, even between projects. Everyone knows the struggles associated with making a film, so why bother crooning over it? The Catcher Was a Spy is a film that not only Lewin, but Hollywood at large has been trying to bring to the big screen for years. It tells the story of Mo Berg, a queer Jewish Major League Baseball player who was hired by the U.S. government during World War II as a spy. His mission? To kill Werner Heisenberg before he could finish creating the atomic bomb for the Nazis. Sounds pretty absurd, but it's a true story. The film made its premiere at Sundance, where I sat down with Lewin to discuss his career, coping with the post-production blues, and most importantly, how to maintain your sanity when making a living as a director. Enjoy. Hey everybody, it's John Fusco, and I'm here with Ben Lewin. And uh, Ben, how are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. <laughs> Good, me too. It's the last day, really, for us here at No Film School. I saw your film the first night uh, on Friday mm. that I was here, and I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Um, we were just talking before we got on air about your experience as a young man in film school. Yeah. And uh, I think that it'd be something pretty interesting to start this conversation off. So you went to film school, correct? Yeah, I went to film school. It's sort of, it wasn't part of my master plan, but I went to the National Film School in England. It was the very first year of the film school. There were only 20 students. In fact, there were more staff than students. And the most brilliant thing about the film school was that there were no teachers and no, there was no curriculum. There were a couple of Land Rovers and there was a whole lot of Araflex cameras and Nagra tape recorders. And, you know, you either went and made your movie or you didn't. Uh, and I, I thought it was just great because I had already worked a bit in the world. It didn't intimidate me. So, you know, OK, we'll have, we have the raw materials. Let's go and make the movie. So for me, you know, those three years at film school were really a tremendous experience. In, in, at every level. What kind of stuff would you go out and make with your, uh, I guess, colleagues or student, your, your fellow students during those years? Uh, well, it, you know, at that time, a mixture of documentaries and drama. My first um, thing was a, a, a comedy drama set mostly in an elevator. And, you know, I learned a little bit about set design mm. I tried to film in a real elevator and that was a disaster yeah. and then we got a guy to show me a bit about set design so that was and then I made mostly documentaries mm. we went and made a documentary in Northern Ireland mm. in Belfast would you believe in 1972 oh wow wow the real yeah. shit was really flying yeah. and 
I mean, that was a life experience more than it was a filmmaking experience. But that was part of the fun of film school and particularly of documentary filmmaking was it was just as much life experience as anything else. Would you say you prefer documentary over drama or is there any preference no, I, there? I actually took the view that documentary was kind of drama without paying the actors. Mm-hmm. And uh, hmm. and really, you, you had the same essential ingredients, a charismatic character going on a journey. Uh, and, you, you know, even in, in, in most effective documentaries, you'll find that central idea as you do in drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I guess I, I loved making documentaries. I, I, I just had the opportunity to shift into drama because I was writing my own scripts. Mm-hmm and just happen but every now and then i make a documentary well i mean your movie that you're here with catcher was a spy yes. is essentially that it's, uh, essentially yeah. a, 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 an attempt to interpret history mm-hmm. yes yes and, and an historical character yeah right so a, a documentary that's that's really a drama or just a i guess a biopic really well, that, that, that really was the challenge of um, the story. Are we telling a biopic or is this the mission story? Mm. And uh, um, I, I think that my sense of how to tell a biopic anyway is to not try and give a Wikipedia account of your character. This happened, this happened, this happened, then he died. But to, you know, try and find what was maybe the most significant episode in that person's life. What was it that sort of really made them memorable? Mm-hmm. And uh, build your biopic around the arc of that story. So it's really, you know, the story of Mo Berg, the man of many faces, mm-hmm. in the context of the race for the atom bomb. Right. So all the circumstance that surrounds it is essential to the biopic, essentially. It's a yes. World War II movie as much as it's a movie about yes. your character. Yes. So why did you think that now was a, a, a great time to be telling a World War II story, specifically Mo Berg's story? Yeah, I, I think maybe you, you, you mistakenly feel that filmmakers have the luxury of choosing the time and sure. place. <laughs> <laughs> and, and usually these things happen serendipitously rather than by design. And I, I think that you know, somehow this story of the race for the atom bomb has fallen into a time when it it means something. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a resonance about it. But we didn't anticipate that. Um, I mean, you know, really, Hollywood has been trying to tell the story of Moberg for about 20 years now. And and I, I guess one of the things I'm kind of proud of is that we're the first to kind of get there with a story of Moberg. Yeah. And there may be and probably are other stories to tell. Mm. But, you know, there has been this ongoing fascination with him. And as I say, the timing is is serendipitous. It's not, you know, I, I certainly didn't have it in my agenda that, well, roughly around the year 2017, I'm going to make a war movie, you know. I guess I was concerned that my total body count wasn't <laughs> all that much and I wanted to kill me a few Nazis <laughs> or something like that. But it, everything happens. My, my whole damn life has been an accident. Yeah. <laughs> and I, what, what, what am I doing here? <laughs> when, so when did you first uh, start thinking about this as a movie? Did it, it took 
20 years to develop or was it a... No, but, but ever since um, Nikki Davidoff wrote the book, Hollywood has been fascinated by it. It's been, you know, I, I'm sure you could trace the hands that it's been through. Mm-hmm. And it just came to me because uh, a good friend who was an actor, John Hawkes, in fact, uh, um, knew the producers of Catcher and sang me up a storm and said, you've got to meet Ben and da, 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 love this story. And he was right. I was really <laughs> intrigued by the story. And, and, you know, that's how this kind of thing happens. And then you, it really pivots around one's ability to get someone credible to play the lead. Mm-hmm. And, 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 uh, 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 you know, when that happened, oh, who was the one there? Paul Giamatti, we're very lucky, uh, happened to be a good friend of Nicky Davidoff. So there was already a pre-existing interest. His father was a baseball commissioner. And, and so you have a bit of luck on your side as well. On top of that, he liked the character and the script. So, uh, you, you know, things kind of fall into place, as I say, without having any i'm i certainly am no puppet master i just wait for luck to come along (laughs) i I like this idea of sort of you know a career being built on accidents and a career being built on luck how do you keep yourself open to those uh opportunities i guess is it is it all just blind luck or do you do certain things to sort of set yourself up for these opportunities to happen well, uh, you, you know, I can't. I'm not a, a believer in blind luck, of course, but um, it's very hard to know when and how a story will come along that kind of makes a mark on the map for mm. you. Mm. Um, and even when it does come along, you don't know that that's the story that is going to either make that mark and elevate you or bury you. Right. Uh, um, so that I am conscious of the unpredictable nature of it. And maybe it's down to my personality, too. I mean, I know, you know, Mike Lee, for example, has a very consistent kind of trademark. Do you know his movies? Yes, yes. And you can't mistake a Mike Lee right. movie. yeah. And maybe he does have this sort of design over his own career and mm-hmm. oeuvre that I'm very envious of. Yeah. The sense that he knows where he's going to be next. I have no idea where I'm going to be next. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I just, I feel that I'm not drawn as a viewer to any particular genre. Okay. Certainly, if you'd offered me Catcher was a spy to go to see this Saturday night, oh, yeah, that's my kind of movie. Sure. Um, but um, I, I like exploring different genres And I I suppose that one of the things that sort of resonated with me a bit, you know, because people are always asking you for tips. Oh, how do you do that? How how am I going to become a successful filmmaker? Right. And and, um, I don't know. I remember talking to a friend of mine as he was walking out my front gate in Australia, and he wasn't a film person. He says, and all he just says was, make something that moves people. Uh, and it seemed a kind of rather banal, not terribly profound comment, but sure. it, it is a profound observation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ultimately, um, I think that I, I would get the most gratification from something that moved someone. I don't know quite that me- what that means, mm-hmm. but 
you know, just maybe shifted them from where they were <laughs> a few minutes ago. Right, right. Um, and um, you you don't always, you know, get a bingo on that one. I mean, you, but as a sort of a vague aim, that seems to be fair enough. Do the scripts that uh, have a, the best chance of moving other people first move you? Yes. Yeah, I know that if I kind of shed a tear or do something, I'm mm-hmm. an easy sucker for that kind of thing. <laughs> Or if I you know, want to turn the page, yeah. next page, next yeah. page, yeah, yeah. If, the, if you've got both of those things, you, you know, I think that uh, that's a winner. Um, I, I mean, you know, I believe that um, we've all stuck our necks out on this one. In particular, um, it, it's a challenge. Yeah. It's not like a kind of hey, you know, boy meets girl, but uh, you've right. got you've got uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Brad Cooper. Go for it, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's right. It's like find a character that no one agrees on. Yeah. Try and blend a biopic with a, a kind of a war adventure, and they're like, oh, that's interesting. Let's see. And and. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm hoping I survive that kind of challenge to sort of to go on, but I don't know to where. Well, yeah, it's a it's a blend of genres. It's, it's interesting that you say you know you're you're uh, you don't have a particular interest in one genre because that might give you more flexibility when it comes to making a movie like this, where you can sort of meld together multiple genres. You know, I think that 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 one of the things that maybe is if I'm looking for a common thread, I really like absurdity. I mm. like, really like an element of the absurd in all of this. Mm. And the catcher was a spy. After all, starts with that idea. You know, they, yeah. You know, we've got the Nobel Prize-winning physicist. You know building the bomb well send in a jewish baseball player he'll fix it so it did have that it has that element of absurdity yeah when that text comes up on screen when i saw it on friday the entire audience just started laughing immediately but at the same time it was the reality of the situation right so that that always appeals to me you know things which shouldn't be you know real fish out of water is this the really the way things are done kind of question so i guess um that's it, always in there somewhere. That's an interesting idea for a filmmaker to uh, to sort of grasp upon. Is is this the way things sort of should be done? Because I feel like that's how filmmakers are thinking about their own work most yeah, of the time. Yeah. You know, but this is in fact you know my second World War Two movie. I did quite a substantial. Oh my God, it was a long time ago, over thirty years ago. It was a mini series. Okay, but again, it was one of those crazy things that happened during World War II that shouldn't have happened. Mm. Uh, so it, it kind of brought me back to that. In a way. And this movie was so epic in scope. I mean, you visited, I don't, I don't know how many uh, places you actually ended, locations you ended up shooting in countries. What, how many were there? Was it just one or Well, did you the cheat? countries that were, you know, there were, of course, the U.S., so there was New York and uh, Boston and, and D.C. Uh, and uh, Tokyo... Yeah. Uh, Rome, uh, Zurich, <coughs> um, and uh, it was all shot in and around Prague. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, doing Tokyo in uh, Prague was really neat. I mean, <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> Were there any big challenges, would you say, for this movie compared to, say, your uh, documentary about World War II that you made, 30, or the, the series you made about World War II 30 years ago that you were just talking oh, about? What I did 30 years ago was actually a drama. It was, you know, starred mm-hmm. uh, Bob Hoskins. I don't know oh, if you wow. remember him. Yeah. Uh, so, you, you know, then I was 
probably uh, much more bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and and unafraid. And when you, the more you learn, the more you're aware of, you know, wow, I've got to get this right. I think that, you know, the, 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 the challenge of the catcher was that there are a lot of complex elements. It, it is, I hope, in the result, a simple story. Mm-hmm. But the elements were complex. Berg's own personality, mm-hmm. which we decided, yes, we do want to know something about him that is, you know, behind the James Bond veil, if you like. Right. Um, you, you know, that sense of uh, an in, innate understanding of secrecy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that one of the challenges was we were dealing with a much more elusive character than I've ever had to deal with and potentially controversial because there are people will come in, oh, I knew Moberg, it wasn't like that at all. Oh, yeah, that's exactly like Moberg. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that's a challenge. You know you're dealing with history. Right. And you can create make-up scenes, of course, that never could have happened, but, but essentially go along with the, the historical facts. Mm-hmm. So I felt a responsibility to tell this piece of history properly mm. as much as possible, but also to create a you know a dramatically compelling version of this guy mm-hmm. not just a version but one that would say oh wow you know what a what a character and and not necessarily to leave people at the end saying oh got it uh, you know it's all da-da-da. but uh, you know a lot of people think i'm going to look into this guy i'm going to read more about him which is a, a satisfying result definitely well it's moved people in a way in that sense where they've actually wanted to go and learn more about your protagonist yes originally designed for hollywood's elite colorists da vinci resolve has been used on more feature films and tv shows than anything else because it lets you create images that are simply impossible with other tools. The latest release of Resolve now incorporates full nonlinear editor functionality and fully featured Fairlight audio, integrated directly with color tools to provide a comprehensive and complete pipeline for finishing. Recently introduced and making an impact around the industry for its high quality and flexible form factor, the Ursa Mini Pro Professional Digital Cinema Camera combines incredible image quality with the features of a traditional broadcast camera. Ergonomically designed controls on the side of the camera allow you to adjust most settings by feel and without ever having to take your eyes off the action. Ursa Mini Pro also features built-in ND filters, a status display, and a revolutionary new interchangeable lens mount that lets you change between EF photographic lenses or PL, B4, and F mount lenses. Ursa Mini Pro is lightweight and comfortable enough to use all day, has controls that are extremely fast to use, an image quality that's far superior to broadcast cameras costing 10 times more. That's the Ursa Mini Pro Professional Digital Cinema Camera from Blackmagic Design. The all-new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones is jam-packed with useful features for shooters on the go. The automatic power function is perfect for the run-and-gun shooter, automatically turning the microphone off when unplugged from the camera. The mic's built-in battery door makes replacing the battery a breeze, plus it won't get lost. It has multiple power options, including the all-new Rode LB1 lithium-ion rechargeable battery, two AA batteries, or powering continuously via micro-USB. The VideoMic Pro Plus also offers digital switching, which ensures that you have ultimate capture of the audio signal at the source, reducing post-production and editing times. 
Finally, the High Frequency Boost will boost high frequencies, enhancing detail and clarity in the recording, and there's a safety channel that helps ensure the signal does not clip when unexpected spikes occur. That's the all-new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones. So, you know, in the course of your career, uh, you've certainly learned a lot. <laughs> what are some of the major things that you've learned over the past, you know, decades that you've been in the filmmaking industry that have really helped you to succeed? You know, you were just saying that you don't, a lot of people come and ask you for tips. Yes. But there's no, I know there's no golden rule for being successful in filmmaking. What would you say are some of the biggest takeaways you've learned from your career? Look, uh, you know, my wife told me don't say anything stupid. Um, uh, um, and, uh, you know, the other day someone said, oh, what advice would you give to young filmmakers? So I said, well, get a dog. Uh, that can be very nice. But, <laughs> I mean, to, to treat your question seriously, what have I learned? It's, you know, what I've learned is not at a professional or technical or filmmaking level. The mm. lessons are, have been personal lessons. Mm. Um and and they've been, uh, I guess, you know, the the useful lessons are the ones which help you maintain a, uh, a you know a working personality to maintain sanity and level-headedness and and kind of leadership responsibilities. Uh, you, you know, when all around you is uh, erupting in flames or whatever. Chaos, uh, yeah. And and. Uh, really to um, try and maintain a, 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 I mean one of the terrible pitfalls of uh, what we do with, that I've experienced is it, it cuts you off from reality you found yourself stuck in a bubble and and um, uh, you, you know I go to a dinner party and uh, what have I got to talk about just the damn movies I'm making yeah. or have made and and, and I guess that, you know, this is not advice. I'm just kind of venting That's and telling you, great, that, yeah. you know, the, the struggles of making films and all the obstacles. That's old news. Everyone knows about that. Right. Um, I think the struggles of, of maintaining a kind of a, a workable and decent personality in circumstances which can often make that very tough... Mm -hmm are probably more important, you know, to be able to lead a stable family life in the midst of all of this yeah. and, um, and to be able to deal with rejection and, uh, you know, all these things which you could say the same thing about someone who wants to be a doctor or right. many other professions uh, because the technology and the business side of it are changing on a daily basis. Uh, any advice I would have to offer would be, you know, totally worthless. <laughs> well, you talk about this this sort of beautiful bubble that you're in when you're making a movie, right? Yes, yes. And then coming out of that is such a, a tough thing to do, I think, for a lot of filmmakers because, you, you know, you have had this thing on your mind for so long. Mm -hmm. And do you have any, I mean, again, tips isn't the right word, but how do you cope with leaving a project and then sort of trying to enter back into this normal family life well you, you know there are the usual sorts of advice that uh, filmmakers give each other about have your next project ready before you, you know so you can just kind of roll into it and and so on um but 
Look, I don't know. I mean, um, one of the questions that's not so much the difficulty of kind of moving out of that bubble, it's you... Um, I don't know how many times people say, oh, are you happy with your film? And I think, well, it's a little bit of asking me, am I happy with my second child? Yeah. Not tall enough, you know, <laughs> could it be a bit smarter, but, you know, I love him, he's my boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it is difficult to both have that relationship with a movie, which you need, you know, you need to get across to people that this is beyond work, this is not just work, this is like religion. Right. Um and at the same time, to have the objectivity or the detachment to see where you made your fuck-ups or where you really should have done something different or, you, you know, step back and say, hey, it's not, it's not a temple, you know, and maybe it's not my child or even if it is my child, you can be critical about your own child. But that's a difficult process, separating right. yourself emotionally from what you've done. And, and uh, um, I don't know. It doesn't, I don't think it gets easier. I don't know whether other filmmakers by a certain stage become very jaded. I don't know. It's maybe if you work on TV procedurals all the time and you've done 78 episodes of a hospital show, yeah. um, you lose a... A personal touch. It's not as sacred. But I still get a big buzz out of, um, you know, sitting on a film set and having people pepper me with questions <laughs> and and uh, telling the actors their motivation and <laughs> all of that. So I, I you know, it's, um, I hope I can remain relevant. And I, you know, I hope Catcher is regarded as relevant. Yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, the programmer who introduced you on Friday said was that you're the nicest filmmaker he's ever met. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And someone used that against me in a review. Really? Yeah, I felt that that was a, a you know, a, you know, I, I was really, I mean, I'd really try not to look at the reviews uh, and, uh, uh, and, you know, that can really mess with your head if sure. you read it. But, but my wife told me, well, he... You know, he chose to use that as a criticism, and um, I. But but I, you know, it was touching, wasn't it? I mean, John. Yeah, uh, you know, John and I, I think, shared a very kind of emotional moment. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the years back with the sessions or the surrogate, as it was then, mm-hmm. and and that was. Um, you know, it was a special moment for me. It was a special Sundance moment, and I'm very very touched that you know he still has that. Um, you know, sense of personal connection. It is nice. Yeah. How I was, I mean, for me, that doesn't seem like a negative thing at all. And I was going to ask how being a nice director on set can actually help the whole vibe of the, of the movement of the, of the film itself. Well, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm not, I'm not kind of overly nice on set. I don't kind of have a whole nice act. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 um, I can be impatient, and uh, but I don't throw hissy fits. Um, but it really is, if I'm nice on set, it's a reflection of the fact that I'm enjoying myself and, and people are doing their stuff. Right. Um, but uh, I, I guess, um, I don't know whether, I guess maybe I should develop the sort of monster side of me. Um, <laughs> 
as you're but the thing is as you're enjoying yourself on set yeah isn't that contagious doesn't that make the rest of your cast and crew also enjoy themselves i i think it's very important for uh, directors to connect with as many elements of the crew that are that they can i I mean on catcher for example i really got on well with the stunt guys yeah i love their attitude you know i really sort of like hanging out with them and they did tremendous work for me so that um you, you know that kind of sense of relationship pays off there is a there is a feeling amongst crews that uh they they do want to please the director Oh, they, well, they might not, you know, but right. but you want to get that sense going. Yeah, and in in the same sense, do you have a uh, a responsibility to try and please the crew? Well, I, I have a responsibility to to, for, to that the crew really thinks that I know what I'm doing, right? Uh, and that often revolves around my relationship with the DP okay. because the crew, a, a film crew doesn't revolve around the director it revolves around the dp okay why why do you why do you say that i'm I'm interested in exploring that further well um in this particular case and wherever i can i really work it out with the dp ahead of time i'm not there trying to figure stuff out on the set of course and and with andre we went through the script twice shot by shot so that you know, every morning we felt like we were hitting the ground running. Now, it's the DP and the first assistant who essentially run the set. I could sit there not saying a word to anybody and no one know who the director was. But it's the DP who does, will decide, for example, I know we were said we were going to do that in the morning, but this bloody great cloud, da, 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 let's, you know, alter our daily schedule and do this. And let's, um, you know, put three cameras on this. So all those physical decisions are typically going to be driven by the DP. And I think it's also important to note that it's the director's responsibility to let the DP make those decisions and to be open to those choices. Because I think a lot of young filmmakers worry that if they give too much power to these other people on set, you know, that they're going to lose that leadership. But really, it's a collaboration. Yeah, look, look, you, you know, it's the same with a lot of... Uh, very important with the DP because that, that's a kind of a daily, minute-by-minute minute, uh, relationship that... I mean, if you don't... If you have a poor relationship with a costume designer, for example, you know, there are ways in which that can be patched over. Right. If you're not communicating with the DP and you're not making the same movie, you're in a bit of trouble. And... Um, uh, uh, we would we would communicate on a constant basis during the day, um, but um, it was by way of kind of fine tuning and altering and, and and so on and so forth. But but I, I still think that the on the face of it, to an observer, the script the the, the crew will revolve will be seen to revolve around what the DP is deciding from one minute to yeah. the next. Yeah, yeah, And And, you know, I'm talking to the actors and, and, and so on and so forth. And as I say, uh, someone who doesn't really know how it works could come on set and not figure out who the director was. That's great. I love that <laughs> idea. 
Well, I think that's I, that's a great note to end it on. So okay, ben, good. Well, I hope you liked the catcher and oh, I love the catcher. Oh, great! And I hope that it, I hope that more people are going to be able to see it too. I was yeah, I was well, trying to give that. it a good plug, and and I'm sure that people will be impressed by what you think. Well, I think that people listening to this podcast <laughs> will just want to go see it for your wisdom that you've just okay, imparted. So, great. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, then go ahead and subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you prefer. And if that happens to be iTunes, leave us a five-star rating. It helps a lot. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. And be sure to tune in on Thursday for Indie Film Weekly. We'll see you then.